Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. given the room time to tune to my large head, so just hang on a minute. It resonates. Well, good morning. How are you? Good to see you. Welcome to new members. Uh, Glad you're here. I was watching online on the drive over. Welcome. We got you. We're going to pray for you and wrap you up, okay? So we're glad you're here. Good. I don't know if you know, but uh, they tear this room apart every week. And uh, I mean, I know some of you think it's still torn apart, but they actually, lots of things happen with cables and the wires. And, and so uh, the team gets in here uh, Friday afternoon, Saturday, and they start cleaning up and patching things back together and hoping everything works and, you know, in time for you to be here and the lights to come on and the sound to work. So thanks to the, to the crew that makes that happen every week. Uh, I was in here earlier in the week, and uh, frankly, I wouldn't have wanted to be in here. But uh, the transformation of getting it cleaned out. And welcome back. Our freshman welcome week happened. How, you, how many of you just got back? Yeah, there they are. So they've had an early morning and here in church, and good to see all of you. So um, let's talk a little bit about this. When you think about your own personal life and your journey, who do you depend on for rescue? How do you get that fixed? And then if you broaden that out a little bit, and I ask you, when you think about the culture and what's happening around us, who do you depend on to do the rescue? And we could take that one step further and we could talk about the world. When you think about the world, what do you think the process might be by which it's rescued? Now, there's a couple of thoughts when it comes to that. And, of course, you're in church, so you think I'm going to say God. I certainly think God has something to do with the rescue. That's really important. And there are folks that just say, just it's up to God to rescue it. He's either going to rescue it or he's not. It doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter what I say. It doesn't matter if I pray. My role in it is minimized. It's just up to God. It's really up to God. It's a God thing. And there's truth in that understanding. Then we live in a culture that's dominated, but people say it's up to us. It's up to me. I got to figure it out. People got to figure it out. Better politicians have to figure it out. Better leaders have to figure it out. It's up to us. Now, I don't know why, but the scripture paints a a story that is neither of those. Or maybe it's both of those. It paints a story called covenant. Where God says, I'm going to do some stuff. And and the stuff I can do, you can't do. But I'm going to need you to do some stuff. And together... We're going to bring the kingdom of God alive to earth. That's what we're going to do. But we're going to do it together. In fact, you'll be my hands and feet. In fact, you'll be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Sometimes people say, I don't know why I should pray. Well, you should pray because it's covenant. Because God says, I'm going to do my part, but you got a part. And if you don't do your part, then then there are things that won't happen. We have to do this collaboratively. 
Now, I don't know about you, but I've been asking God to fix me for a lot of decades. I know some of you have been asking him to fix me too. <laughs> and so far, it's, it's one of those things that I think God certainly works in ways inside of my life. But that one big zap, that one big lightning bolt that finally fixed all my stuff, my thinking, my attitude, I haven't gotten hit with that lightning bolt yet. Often what I get is, here's some things, and you ought to get to work on that. And you ought to pay attention to that. And somehow there's a collaborative covenant relationship that I share with a living divine God. And I walk in that reality. It matters. I've been facing this truth for a little while now. And that is that uh, there is almost always daily in my life a most obvious question. And I wonder why no one asked it. Is anybody else going through this philosophical dilemma in your journey? Let me help you. Yeah, thank you. Just a couple of you. I have frequently gone into a restroom and washed my hands and reached for a paper towel and pulled the paper towel to have it come apart in my hands. And I say, who did not ask the most obvious question? Which is, when this paper towel is wet, does it maintain the tinsel strength to be extracted from this paper towel holder? Amen? Anybody else have that situation happen to you? And you just go, how do you run this place and you don't ask that question? Because the whole system has fallen apart right here. Maybe you saved 12 cents on that load of paper towels, but we're never getting them out of there. We would have to have dry hands to get them out of there. And then we walk at, you see people walking around places with tissue on their fingers, wiping them on their pants, because that whole system broke down. It looked good. It looked like it was made to wash your hands and dry them. But nothing in there worked. Nothing. They never run out of paper towels, in fairness. So that's the most obvious question situation for me. You know. Or how many of you have had this happen to you? Can the napkins they give you in places get any smaller or less effective? I mean, haven't you at some point taken that thing out and gone, at this point, it's a piece of toilet paper. I, I, how did we get here? And then you want to go in and say, I have an obvious question for you. Is it better for me to use 36 of these or one real napkin? Which would be more economical, really? I mean, let's get down to it. This is silly, a personal favorite of mine. You know when you drive through the fast food place? So I've already lost a lot of the crowd here. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't, I don't eat fast food. How sad. <laughs> you drive through and you get your drink and they give you your straw. A couple things happening here. It turns out that the lid is eight times stronger than the straw. Straw's going to break 17 times trying to get it in the drink. You need tools. I have to keep tools in my car to open up the plastic lid to get the straw in. These cause accidents. And then I find myself not even going to places that give me paper straws. I don't understand that concept at all. Because like, the most obvious question is, will this one paper straw get me through this drink? And so far, the answer is no, it will not. 
And now places have said, you just don't get a straw. I can't trust you with a straw. You're not getting one. You just get a cup with a spout. This is dangerous. You know, trying to drive and do this at the same time, that's, that's not good. And I think sometimes when we think about our relationships and our life and our culture and our world, there are obvious questions we could ask, but we don't. And we do dysfunctional things that are kind of dumb. We do them as a culture. We do them in the world. But we do them as individuals, too. And I think maybe the most obvious question of all is this one. Can I do better? Can I do better? Well, but, you know, because of the politics and the... Whoa, 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 whoa. All of that aside, can you do better? Can I do better? Well, you don't understand the situation I'm in at work. You know, it's about a... You don't know these people. Yeah, but... But just the most obvious question is, can, can you do better? Could we do better? I grew up in a world that was really based on common sense and practicality. Anybody else with me on that? It was very much a common sense, practical kind of world. And so when we see things like, times change, you know, when you're young, that's a philosophical statement. Times change. I'm sure they do. But when you're older, you're like, no, I experienced the change. <laughs> it's a different place that we live in now. It's not the same. And I'll say this too. There was this kind of graciousness in the world I grew up in. I heard people say this a lot. There but for the grace of God go I. (laughs) You know, I'm not special. If it weren't for just a random set of circumstances, I'd be, I'm not judging that person. I'm not saying bad things about that person because you know what? It would have just taken two little switches in my life and I'd be in a, there but for the grace of God. And I grew up in a culture that was pretty prone to forgiveness. And I'll tell you, we had pretty realistic expectations of leaders. We did not expect them to be perfect. We kind of expected they'd be broken. And why did we expect that they'd be broken? Because we're broken. And we knew it, and we understood it. And we asked ourselves as a culture, as a country, as a world, as individuals, as churches, can we do better? Can we do better? Can we do better in that situation? Can we just do better in that situation? And it seems like it's the most obvious question we ought to be asking today. At the beginning of the 20th century, there was a movement within the philosophical community led by people like Immanuel Kant and, and Huxley, and, and they began to give us a philosophy about life that, that this world is bought into, that this culture, specifically the Western world, is bought into. We call that philosophy humanism. And what humanism said is, and this is a good idea, it said what we ought to be as human beings are practitioners. That, that we ought for one minute to stop thinking about how the next world is going to affect us. And we ought to be brutal. Listen to. We ought to be brutally honest about this world. And we ought to be brutally honest about what works and about what doesn't. And we ought to hang on to the things that do work. And we ought to eliminate the things that don't work. This was the basic understanding in the early 20th century of humanism. Very quickly, humanism changed to something called secular humanism. Now, secular humanism took this idea a step further, and what it said was, 
if we eliminate any sort of moral understanding of the divine or the supernatural or superstition, then human beings can figure out the best way to live. Being brutally honest about what works and what doesn't work. We don't need any information coming from any higher power. We don't need any information coming from any sort of idea of the supernatural. Just down here on the human level, at a very practical level, we're just going to be honest about what works and we're going to be honest about what doesn't work. And that's how we're going to live as a culture and as a world. And so humanism began to take its grip on the culture in the early 20th century. It really sort of got a a big boost at the opening of the 1960s. What we call the cultural revolution began in this country in which we really embraced this idea of throwing away morality, of getting rid of all the ethical structures in our culture. All the oughts were done away with. And we figured if we did away with all the odds and we became very practical about what works and what doesn't, we'd be a happier, better place to live. We're about six and a half decades into that experience now. Believe it or not, that's what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 7 as he has sort of led some folks through the process as he's sort of talked to them about the fact that that these folks who are fighting among themselves, are, are, they have a lot of things in common, and he's writing this letter of Romans to pull them back together. And he starts by saying, you're one big mess. <laughs> one. Emphasis on the one. We are one. We are united in this reality. And then he spells it out. You Gentiles, you're a mess. But we Jews are a mess too. And so here's, here's why it matters that we're a mess. Because God meets our mess with his grace. And we share in common our lostness, but we share in common our foundness. The invitation to be different, to be changed, to be transformed. And so we ought, to, we ought to see that. We ought to see our own messiness and the messiness of others. And we ought to see the grace of God. And in that we should come together under this banner of God's forgiveness and God's grace. And we should be united together along the way because it matters. And so when we begin to dive into what he's teaching us in, in the, as the letter unfolds, he's, he's inviting us to have a realistic view of the world and a realistic view of what happens. There have been some smart people throughout the world that recognize this truth, the same truth that Paul recognizes, and that is the evil of the world doesn't reside out there somewhere. It's not about politics. We should, we should practice this, okay? Because... Next year, about this time, there's going to be an election. Everybody know that's coming? We're all looking forward to it, aren't we? Um, So here's what we're going to do. We're going to prepare as a congregation to just have a good attitude. Amen? And here's where it starts. We don't really believe that politics are the answer to the problem. Okay, we're going to try one more time. I mean, I know it's early, and we're going to practice a little bit. Uh, but we know that politics are not the answer to the, to the trials and tribulations of human beings. Amen. Yeah, they may help in some ways, but they also hurt in some ways. And, and I don't know if you know this, but politicians are imperfect human beings. <laughs> and there but for the grace of God... Oh, wait a minute. No, that's not true. I'm, I'm not ever going there. That's not a thing. Alexander Solzhenitsyn. The battle line between good and evil runs through the heart of every person. Amen? Amen. Scott Peck, 
The whole course of human history may depend on a change of heart in one solitary and even humble individual. For it is in the solitary mind and soul of the individual that the battle between good and evil is waged and ultimately won or lost. Can we do better? Can we do better as individuals? It's the invitation. So Paul then addresses directly this struggle and what it means and how it looks to people. And this is brutally honest stuff right here. In fact, it's a, it's a perfect moment in which you say, with the book of James, you know, uh, sometimes the word of God just mirrors our behavior. This is one of those times. Listen to what he writes, chapter 7, verse 15. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate to do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it's sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it's sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature I'm a slave to the law of sin. And everybody said, I mean, that's uh, that's a lot of truth and reality getting dumped on us all at once. To stop and to think about how he crafts this together. This This is an autobiographical statement by him. This is my experience. This is what happens to me. This is what goes on in my inner world as I try to make my way in the world and do the right thing and figure it all out. But he writes something that's not just about himself. It's about us too. We all see ourselves in this story. We see ourselves in this reality. We feel that struggle inside of us. And the struggle is real. Amen? And it's messy. And it's messy in each of our stories, and it's messy in each of our lives. I see six things that I think Paul wants us to fully understand and to make sense of in our journey. Number one, humans don't understand human behavior. Isn't it weird how we look at ourselves and we go, I don't really understand myself. (laughs) Amen? You're not convinced? Like, I'm having this experience right now. I'm thinking I need to eat healthier, you know. And all I can say about eating healthier is just two words. Dough nuts. (laughs) You understand? Like a beacon of evil in the world, isn't it? But there's a thousand of those. We had birthday, we're on a birthday weekend this weekend. Our house is full of things that you shouldn't eat. And all of us are like, I'm eating healthier. (laughs) No, I am. I'm not. No, I'm just having two more of these and that's it. (laughs) Cutting off. Because 
in so many ways at so many levels. This is a reality of what it is to be a human. No, this is what I want to do. No, I believe this. I'm doing this. We don't even understand our own behavior. But we sure figure that everybody else ought to be logical, don't we? I mean, what do we talk about? We talk about the crazy people in the world who are not doing what they are supposed to do. We've had those discussions all week as the world blows up into conflict. Well, the crazy people out there, why don't they all do what they're supposed to do? Because human beings do not understand human behavior. We do not understand it. We do not get it. We do make an assumption, by the way, as Westerners, and the assumption is everybody in the world wants the same thing. We all want to get along. We all want to be at peace. We all value human life. We all want justice. We all want equality. We want an end to racism. Just so you know, not everybody in the world wants those things. And we're appalled. We're like, really? Other people don't want that? Because we don't understand human behavior. We just don't fully understand human behavior. And Paul says this is really important. If you're going to survive in the world, if you're going to lay down your burden and you're going to carry on and you're going to get through difficulty and, and the things that overwhelm us and cause us deep fear, you're going to have to admit this. We don't fully understand human behavior. We just don't get it. Now, I want to just ask you this question. How much time and energy have you spent in the past week analyzing human behavior? Talking about it, figuring it out, watching stuff, reading stuff, trying to come to a conclusion, making a statement, making an argument, talking to people about it. How much time? How much time on politics? How much time on world order? How much time do we spend in the analysis? How much time do you spend thinking about your spouse or your kids or your friends and the things they do and now you don't understand them? How much time do you spend? It's an exhausting process. And Paul just says, let's just up at the front say this very loudly. We don't understand what we do. <laughs> it's just a door. I'm just going to go. This is how I'll tell that story. It's the middle of the service, and I was preaching, and people were trying to bust in. It was so good. And just, let me in. Let me in. It's the way I saw it. <laughs> By the way, I don't know if you've met him. But he's my very most positive heckler ever. When he sits in here, he will say really nice things about me. So you are all on notice. <laughs> so how much time have you spent in analysis this week? We don't understand human behavior. It's a burden we don't need to carry around because we really don't get it. Number two, humans can intellectually understand what is better. He says in verse 16, and if I do what I do not want to do, then I agree that the law is good. I know what I want to do, and I know what I don't want to do, because intellectually, I can figure it out. Amen? And we know this. We can intellectually, even though we don't understand our own behavior, we do have a concept of right and wrong. We do have a concept of what's better for us and what's not as good for us. It's not like we don't know. But the assumption of humanism is because I intellectually can understand what is better, then I will choose what is better. Is that working out for you? Because that's not always how we behave, is it? It's not always what happens in the processes of our lives. So we come back to asking the most obvious question, but could I do better? Could I do better in my relationship with God? Could I do better in my relationship with others? Even though I don't understand human behavior... Maybe that's not really what it's about. It's not about me figuring it out and understanding it. Maybe I just try every day to do a little bit better in the process. Number three, 
humans still choose poorly. Even though we have an intellectual understanding, we choose poorly. Now, here's what's amazing to me about our humanistic culture. People are surprised that people do poorly. Amen? And I've tried to analyze that. And here's what I've come up with. Why are people so shocked when leaders, politicians, people, celebrities do the wrong thing? Choose poorly. Why are we so surprised? Because don't we all kind of go... Yeah, we're human beings and we sort of make a lot of bad choices. Amen? This is what I've come up with. When you have decided that the answer to the world's problems and rescue is going to come from within a human being, you need them to perform really well. I mean, when you decide that the rescue of our culture and our world is up to our leaders and politicians, you need them to do very well. When we've decided that human beings are leading the way and it's within them to teach us and show us how we're supposed to do, then celebrities better say the right stuff and do the right stuff and live the right way. And athletes better do the right stuff and say the right stuff and live the right way. Everybody better get it right. And in our culture today, if they do not, we will cancel them. There's no more there before the grace of God go I. We have elevated human beings to a point that they are our hope. So when they fail us, we'll get rid of them and get some more human beings to put on the pedestal. And boy, what a vicious cycle that is. Amen. People perform poorly. Number four, humans blame authority for their unhappiness. (laughs) He says, when I see the law, I say, man, if I didn't know the law, I'd be a happy person. If somebody didn't tell me the rules, I wouldn't know I was breaking them, and that'd be good. And isn't that what happened in the 1960s? We said, you know what? This oppressive state in which morality has been defined for us, if we just got rid of that and did our own thing and followed our own heart, who's to tell us what we can do and can't do? We are going to have a cultural revolution. There's going to be free love. There's going to be free drugs. They were never free. (laughs) we're just going to throw off all the restraint and what's going to happen is as a result we're going to pick what's best and we're going to do what's best and our culture is going to thrive we're about six and a half decades into that experiment how's it going how's it going because morality is not an obstacle course that God sets up for us to run to see if we are worthy of getting into heaven Sadly, that's what the church has taught for a long time. You get really good, and then you die, you get to go to heaven, and it'll be great. Right now, it's terrible, but it'll be really great later. Right now, you're suffering, but later on, when you die, you got to die. But when you die, now let's sing a praise song. Amen? But that was not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Morality was not an obstacle course, and the reward of which is you get to go to heaven. Morality was, I created you, you're my children, I know how you work best, I want you to thrive, I want you to have abundant life. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. And here's some guidelines that'll keep your heart, mind, soul, and body safe, so that you can go through your life with the greatest amount of hope, because life's still hard, but you can go through life with a hope. And when the time comes for you to lay down your earthly journey, still I will hold you and wrap you up and carry you forward. The rules are not the problem. 
That's not the lack of freedom, but we blame it as a culture, and you'll hear it over and over and over and over. Number five, humans share this common reality. We're all like this. We can look at politicians and celebrities and people that are prominent and decision makers around the world, but in all honesty, when we look in the mirror, we know what we ought to do and we don't do it, and, and, and we see ourselves and there's a battle going on inside of us and we get it. Because this is what we share in common as humanity. And so therefore, how does God meet this mess in us? Grace. He meets it with grace. So therefore, how do we meet this mess in other people? Grace. A lot of grace. They need a lot of grace. Amen? Because we don't understand why people behave the way. But we act like we do. And we get vocal about it. And we talk a lot. And we tell, well, I'll tell you what they ought to do up there in Washington. If I got up there, this is what I'd do. No, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. You'd be on the take like everybody else because you could. Amen? I mean, if I go to Washington, I'm getting rich. That's all I know. Sometimes you just think, I shouldn't have said that. And 10 o'clock too, so it's actually now out there. We share this in common. Finally, number six, humans are invited to two true transformation. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me. Listen, what is the hope of the world? What is the hope of my personal rescue? What is the hope of the cultural rescue? What is the hope of the world rescue? It is a covenant relationship where this human being, with all of its fallibility, invites the transforming power of God to work in my heart, mind, life, and spirit. And we enter into a collaborative covenant relationship in which day by day and moment by moment, he guides me and helps me. He sets before me again and again choices. Well, you ought to do this. Why don't you go this way? (laughs) And I find that he empowers me to make better choices. Do I still make all the best choices? Obviously, I do not. But this is the divine plan. A collaborative covenant relationship in which God does his part and I do my part. And I don't worry about the condition of the world. I'm not surprised by it. I'm not overwhelmed by it. I I, I trust that God is working in situations around the world in hearts and minds and spirits of individuals to accomplish his perfect will on earth as it is in heaven. It's what I believe. It's how I live. It's how I relate to politics. At least it's how I am invited to relate. Now, I don't know about you, but I wish God would zap me and fix me. And then I have a list of people I wish he would zap and fix. Amen. Most of them I meet at the four-way stop after church. Because don't you wish God just fixed it? Don't you wish God just took the initiative and, and, and came down and just fixed it? But instead he says, now I'm going to need you to cooperate because I am a God of covenant. Abraham, walk before me and be blameless and I will be your God and you will be my people. And through you, the nations of the world will be blessed. Through you. I'll help you. I'll empower you. I'll guide you. I'll lead you. But through you. You give them something to eat. You take care of them. You are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Not helpless. It is a messy struggle. It's real. 
It happens inside of us day by day. It happens in our culture. It it happens in an ongoing way in our world. It's not my job to figure it all out and analyze it and talk about it and critique it. That's not who I'm supposed to be in the world. I'm supposed to be an ambassador of reconciliation as though God himself is making his appeal through me. Me. And can't we do better? Can't we do better? At the end of this long chapter of Romans 7, he continues his argument, and it may be the most powerful redemptive words in all of Scripture. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set me free from the law of sin and death. You and I are invited to live differently, feel differently, act differently, have a different level of anxiety, and a different level of hope. And my prayer is, as we close this service, is that you could lay down some burdens. Stop trying to solve it all. You can't solve it in your own person by yourself. You can't solve it in your home. You can't solve it in your family. You can't solve it in the culture. You can't solve it in the world. And so we become like little children. We humble ourselves. We seek the support and the love of our fathers. And when we are weak, that's when we're strong. Let's pray. God, would you please help us as we think about what it means for us in this journey to trust you, to let go, to stop talking so much and with so much authority and listen more and trust more and pray more because you've invited us. We pray for healing in our world. We pray for healing over bodies that need to be touched and transformed. We believe you hear us when we pray that you enter into a collaborative relationship, a covenant in which you do work, and we continue to ask nothing less than complete healing over some folks that need to be touched today. Praying for Luke, Sarah asking for intervention, healing, transformation. We're going to do our part, but we're asking you, God, to do your part exceedingly, abundantly more than we could ever ask or even imagine. We need you. Lord, we need you. So as we close, would you hear our response, we pray. We give you thanks. We ask it all in Jesus' name and everybody said together, amen. Will you stand as we respond to the word? Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.